I couldn't stand by and let my my club, you know, my team that I'd supported since I was eight years of age get destroyed by this, in, you know, this nasty bit of work, northern businessman. Amazing that I was 50 years a fan before I came uh, became chairman, but I never expected to become chairman. And that's one of the lessons I, I learned early on which is in my business, which is to, is surround yourself with good people. You can't do it on your own. You know, for me, it, it's all about determination, enthusiasm for the job, you know, for what you're doing. If you also had a will to win, I mean, I brought all that stuff into football. Then the bad, dark days hit the Albion, you know, uh, the Archer and Bellotti and, and uh, Stanley. What made you get in at that time? Come April 96, sadly, my dear wife Margie had died in October, the previous October, and um, Liam approached me again and said, it's now or never. I couldn't stand by and, and see my club being destroyed by this guy who had no genuine interest in the club at all. He had the potential to be a big club, and now we're fulfilling that. I'm on a mission to help the world to see success differently. From sharing the stories of our guests, I hope to inspire those that listen. This is the Different Hats podcast, produced by H2 Productions. I hope you can join us on this journey. I just wanted to take a moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Nostos, an authentic experience of Greece right here in the heart of Hove. In a world brimming with dining options, finding that one place that captivates your palate and heart isn't always easy. It's about more than food. It's the stories, the ambience, the slice of another world. This is the essence of Nostos, an award-winning Greek restaurant. With traditional recipes passed down through generations, each dish promises a story and a piece of heritage. And Nostos is more than just a restaurant. It's a community contributor. Each dining experience supports initiatives close to their heart, from local charities to cultural events enriching Brighton and Hove's social fabric. They also provide catering services, bringing Greek cuisine to your personal events. For a taste of Greece without leaving town, visit nostos-hove.co.uk. And when you do go, say Sam recommended the Feta Nests. Oh my God, they are amazing. Okay, welcome to a special episode of the podcast. After our very successful first collaboration, I'm delighted to welcome my incredible co-host and good friend from the Authentic Resilience podcast, Mr. Gary Peters. Thank you, Sam. Great to have you back, mate. Gonna be gold. Today's guest, big, big, a true Brighton legend, <laughs> a businessman who ran a very successful advertising agency for many years, who were the creators behind the famous Hello Boys or Wonder Bra adverts. He's also former chairman of Brighton and Hove Albion FC, a post he held from 1997 to 2009. A lifelong fan of the club. He took control in 1997, having led the fan pressure to oust the previous board following their sale of the club's Goldstone ground to property developers. On 18th of May 2009, he was replaced as chairman 
at Brighton by Tony Bloom, who had successfully secured 93 million funding for the amazing Amex Stadium. He still remains life president of Brighton Over Albion. I'm, of course, talking about the one and only Mr. Dick Knight. Hello, guys. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Listen, absolutely great to have you on, mate. Really is. Um, me and you have been talking about it and we're excited about this one, mate. Yeah, I've known Dick a long time. I'm really excited to, to see where we go with this. It'll be fun. Amazing. Well, look, Dick, as always, we're going we're gonna to kick things off. We, everyone's story's got to start somewhere, right? So we, I want to know something about your childhood. Give me a little snapshot in 60 seconds, saying about your childhood that has helped shape who you are, who sits in front of me today. Well, I came, my dad came back from the Second World War, believe it or not. I, I was born before the Second World War <laughs> in 1938, uh, so I wasn't responsible for it. But um, my dad went off in the Air Force, and uh, he survived it, amazingly. Uh, and he came back, and one of the first things he did was to take me to the Albion. Now, I was eight years of age, so whereas with my grandchildren, I took taken them to the to watch the Albion when they're at various ages of just over one, I was eight before I savoured the Albion. And my dad, uh, who was a pilot in the war, uh, years and years later told me that one of the things that kept him going was that he would, uh, you know, uh, one day perhaps take his son, young son to the Albion he he was an Albion fan you know believe it or not and uh, so in 1946 he took me to a game against uh, Mansfield at the Goldstone and I remember the the thrill of it was really about you know when you come up the, on the east side of the t- of the, at the terrace we weren't sitting in a seat or anywhere we were just going to be on the terrace the east terrace and uh I came up this, you know, slope from the turnstile and looked down and there was this green sward with these little, you know, blue and white striped figures running around on it. And I think Mansfield were wearing orange or something like that. Uh, And um, anyway, we won this game 5-1 and yet we were bottom of the league. And so that game was quite... uh, that, I, that's where I fell in love with the Albion there and then, because we won. You know, if we'd <laughs> lost that game, whether I'd have been where I am today <laughs> with my history of, with the Albion, I don't know. Of course, I would have loved my team because it's my team. And we, it, it, the best supporters of football teams are family supporters, you know, who live through it, good and bad. Uh, if you're a Man United fan, then... You're living through the bad times now. Um, in the case of the Albion, we went years and years and years, uh, you know, without really any success. But uh, little did I know on that day in, I think it was November 1946, uh, or maybe it was March, actually, because it was the season 45-46, I think. Uh, anyway, that year we finished bottom. And we had to apply for re-election. Well, turkeys don't vote for, uh, for Christmas, do they? You know, in other words, the re-election process was all the clubs in the league voted to stay, keep all the other clubs who were at the bottom in the league. So the clubs outside the league had no real chance of getting into the league. 
that occasionally there was an exception. I remember when Peterborough came into the league. Uh, that was about in 1950-something. But it was, you know, you always, clubs at the bottom always got re-elected. So we actually have a history of being bottom of League Two, which the irony was, of course, when I took over as chairman of the Albion, we were bottom of League Two. Uh, so it would appear that nothing mm. had changed <laughs> in that in that fifty odd years. Uh, of course, it had hugely. Uh, no, it was forty odd years, wasn't it? From forty six to ninety seven, fifty one years of supporting before I actually. I've just worked that out myself, uh. you know, quickly. <laughs> uh, amazing that I was fifty years a fan before I came uh, became chairman, but I never expected to become chairman. And nor did my dad expect that either. Uh, of course, he. How far into your being a fan did your uh, dad see you be a fan? You know, did it? Did he hang around long enough to see? Oh yeah, you he chairman? was. He was. Um, you know, he used to come. He used to uh, come to some games, not that many, because he was, you know, uh, affected by the war. Mm. Uh, and uh, but I started out behind the goal. You know, behind the north, uh, the goal, the north goal, and there was this wonderful aroma when you stood behind the north goal, um, and I related this aroma totally to football, right? Because it was the only place where I sensed and enjoyed this aroma, and um, it was only quite a while later that I realised it was cigar smoke, <laughs> because people, you know. It was a closed stand, the North Stand, of course, at the Goldstone. And so the the fug of cigar smoke and cigarette smoke hung around in the air and enveloped you, you know. And um, so there was this... And, of course, a lot of people smoked pipes in those days. So it was... It was it was genuine tobacco smoke, and it was smelled great. And I always associated this this smell with football. It, it was I never realised it what it actually was until you know years later when I grew up, um, and funnily enough, never started smoking when I was young at all. Didn't need to by the sounds mm. of it. <laughs> Pardon? Didn't need to. No, I didn't because everyone uh, you were embraced in cigarettes and, and uh, cigar smoke. Uh, and pipe smoke. It was pipe tobacco, really. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, the team wasn't very good, but it didn't really matter uh, because that was the team and you supported them. Um, there were my favourite all-time Albion player, but then, you know, most of us go back to when we were younger and we now, currently here in 2023, have got the most wonderful team we've ever had. Mm-hmm without a doubt, uh, but my all-time favourite Albion player is Johnny McNichol, who was a, an inside forward. He would, Today we'd call him a playmaker, midfield player, but he was a brilliant player uh, who came, because in those days the wages were the same. There was a maximum wage, so you could have a third division player getting the same wages as, as a division one player, which was the case in Johnny's case. And so he came from Newcastle um, to Brighton um, and uh, was brilliant for us for three or four years before he went 
to Chelsea of all clubs. <laughs> we have a history of selling players to Chelsea. Um, and but Johnny was a he he was mesmerising. He would show the ball to the to a defender, and then he would go one way, and then he'd go another way, and then he'd nutmeg them, or he'd go outside them. Either way, to, totally two footed, was a goal scorer. Uh, as well as a, a goal maker, I remember. You know, when I got to the grammar school, Hove County Grammar School, uh, I remember sneaking off early one afternoon uh, from school because um, in those days there were no floodlights. So uh, there were when the f- fixtures piled up, we played games in the afternoon, midweek afternoon. So there was a kick off about four o'clock. Um, you know, early before that, in the light. And I remember we played Newport County in a Division Three South game, and it was absolutely teeming with rain. The pitch was just a, a sea of mud. And we won this game 9-1, right? And Johnny scored four and made the other five. <laughs> yeah, McNichol scored four goals in that game, and I'll never forget that. You know, he was just... A, Throughout his time at Brighton, he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, he was a class player who, by accident, came to play in the third level. But he went straight to Chelsea and went in their first team straight away. And the following season, when he left Brighton, within a year or so, Chelsea won the won the old first division. The some only the time s- they'd ever done it. Some of the skills you were mentioning there remind me a bit of <clears throat> Sam when I've seen him play. You know, like back in the day. Yeah. Still be in the locker. Yeah. Well, Injury. What, yeah. Well, Sam, did you have to hang up, hang up, hang up your boots? Unfortunately, mate. Yeah, I'm wait, still waiting for my operation. I still might get a call back. You're warming up on the touchline, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> mate, I, listen. I just, I just want to touch on just a little bit, moving away just from the album slightly, and just touch on life growing up for you. And what led you into getting into your career in advertising and, and business? What, just talk to me a little bit about that. What was that that period like? Life growing up. Well, what led you into that. Um, I went to the grammar school, and I was due to go to university. I was a writer. I was good at uh, writing. I was good at English. I was quite good at mathematics as well. But my specialty was writing. Uh, and um, I finished up backpacking on the continent uh, for a year or so uh, with a pal of mine and during which time we uh, went to the old Nou Camp Stadium in Barcelona. So the the love of football was there. Uh, The Albion was sort of, you know, meandering away in the lower reaches of the Division 3 South at the time. Um, And anyway, I had to do national service uh, you know, and I went in the Air Force because they thought I would sign on because my dad, you know, had been uh, what he did in the war. So and I was the last thing I was going to do was sign on because I saw what it did to my dad. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically um, I uh, so when I was in in the Air Force, I decided that the last thing I wanted to do was work in insurance, which I had originally, in order to get a job of any description, I I went to this insurance job in Brighton, and I hated it. 
absolutely hated it. So uh, during the time I was doing national service, I made a few approaches about uh, writing. And then I met this, this was as a journalist, but then I met this guy who worked in advertising uh, in the Air Force. And uh, so he made me think along those lines. And then uh, I was going out with this girl who later became my wife, uh, whose father had connections with ad agencies in London. And he got me this interview with this top agency. And I couldn't believe my luck because, and I managed to pass their very, very stringent, what they called the copy test. So there I was working in this, uh, when I came out of national service age, you know, 22. Um, there I was working in this hot ad agency in Berkeley Square in Mayfair in London and learning the business. And, uh, you know, but I always, because it was based on writing, the ability to write, so... I I was confident that I could do that mm. well. You know, I could do it. And I thought, I'd, you know, this guy that I'd met who became a friend of mine in the Air Force. He was not a copywriter, uh, which, and I made a, I made my intention to become a copywriter, you know. Uh, and uh, so I was able to prove that I could do that job to, sufficiently to get a start. And so there I was working in advertising and... Um, Travelling up and down from Brighton every day. You made your own luck there. I made my own luck there. But one day, because I had just got married, here's a nice one for you. Um, I was, I, I have been known in, in over many years as the late Dick Knight, right? What time did you get here today? I got here late. <laughs> well, yeah, but absolutely. then I was held up by traffic <laughs> yeah, and yeah. my injured leg. Yeah. Everyone, I'm I'm probably going to be out for the rest of the season, but I've got this very bad injured <laughs> injured leg, um, uh, which is not responding to treatment. So I'm going to have to, you know, go for a ACL injury uh, treatment or whatever. Uh, anyway, the point is that um, what was I saying? You're telling me a little gem about making your own luck. Yeah, but um, being called late dick. Yeah, no, so anyway, I used to travel on the the Brighton Bell train from Brighton at 9.25 in the morning to get to Victoria at 10.25. And um, one of the people that was sitting in the last carriage on that train when I used to leap on it just as it was about to pull out, and and um, without a tie on, though I was, then I put a tie on as I was walking down the train, was none other than Sir Lawrence Olivier. Oh, wow. He used to sit in this carriage near the end of the back of the train and it was near near the barrier at Brighton Station. So I got on this... I threw myself on the last carriage every morning. <laughs> and one day... So he always sat in this private carriage, uh, compartment, part of the... Which was private. Uh, and he... Un, he leant across and slid the door open and he said young man he said why do you get on this train why do you you know get on the train at the last minute so I said well I'm 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 he said how what job do you do because um 
you know, you're going to London to, do you work in the theatre? So I said, no, I don't, I work in advertising. And anyway, I told him that I just got married, so probably that was why I was late. But also, being a copywriter, you know, you didn't have to get there at nine o'clock in the morning or 9.30, which is when the office opened in London, it, as long as you did the work. You know, you, I could often do it on the train, going back some of my... Flexible working, even back then. Development work. You know, you're do, working on a, on a campaign concept, you're working on an idea, so you can scribble stuff. You know, this is long before computers or anything. Uh, anyway, so um, he then, uh, he said, I, he asked me, uh, he, he asked me to come in and sit down. So I'm sitting there with Sir Laurence Olivier and this carriage on his own. And he said, do you want some breakfast? Would you like some breakfast? So, I mean, I was, he said, so you work in advertising? Well, this is a story that I'm sorry, but, you know, I'm I'm going off on a tangent. Well, I want to hear it. But but um, he said um, I've been offered a contract to do an advertising campaign with Kodak in America, you know. Yeah. And he said, "Do you know about these contracts? What they what you should get?" And I said, "Well, I do know some of it, but I couldn't." He, he told me, and I, I'm not going to tell you the figures that he... But the figure he quoted to me was way below what, what I know he should have been offered. Yes. So he had an agent in America who... They'd never done anything like advertising. They'd never done any... So there I was, you know, and I said, well, I can check out for you. I've got an idea of what you should be offered. I got understood that it was a global campaign... And it was television and posters, right? Um, billboards, as they call them in America. And um, so anyway, I came back a couple of days later, or a week later. He kept waving to me on the, as I got I didn't dare to get on the carriage. I walked past the carriage because I, I was kind of scared of him. But eventually I went in. I, I got the information that I needed and I told him what he should get rather than the figure, paltry figure that they'd, um, you well, know. Did they'd he thank g- you? And he uh, did thank how, how me. How was your commission out of that? Pardon? No, I didn't get any commission. I, I think breakfast with Sir Lawrence was, um, wow. I never put that in my book, funnily enough. I don't know why, because there's so many things that have happened to me. It's, it's quite interesting. Well, I'd be interested later on to know well, he, the he, you know. He, everyone knew that he lived in Brighton. Hmm. And, of course, I said to him, I worked it out in my... Because when we got to Brighton, um, when we got to Victoria, sorry, he said, you can go now, before we got to Victoria. And, of course, what it was, he got on that carriage, the last one, so that when the train arrived at Victoria, he would be walking down the platform to the barrier after everyone else. So no one would notice him, or very few people would, because he was in the in the very first, last carriage getting into Victoria. So that's why he sat there. And, um, yeah. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. So t- t- tell us then a little bit from that, uh, 
I don't know what that, that's got it? to do with the question you asked me. <laughs> we knew this would happen, Dick. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's still a, a great story. story. It's all about the stories. It's all about the stories. We want to. I want to know. We're, so we're, Why don't you go back and ask the same question? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm keen. I tell you what, I want to move on. I want to know. I want to know from copywriting and um, that early part of advertising. How do you go from that to starting your own agency? Well, I went from copywriting to uh, learning the all the, the whole business in terms of uh, the account handling of an account in an ad agent, a client account. And uh, I moved from uh, J. Walter Thompson, which was this kind of university of advertising, was seen as that, uh, to an American agency based you know based in London and then another American agency based in London over a period of, of several years mm. and in that time I was an account director which is the main person dealing with the client and controlling the strategy of the campaign that we were producing for them so it was all about learning the marketing of a product and researching it, uh, getting to know. It's like the ad, when you see an ad campaign, it's a bit like the bit of an iceberg that sticks out of the water. There's six-sevenths beneath the surface, which is all about research, positioning, understanding the target market, um, and uh, trying out various uh, approaches to test the water so to speak so all of that is part of the beneath the water and what you actually see on tv or on a on a poster or in a press ad um or now you know on social media uh is the product of a lot of hard work that has gone into the finished product mm. now today you know uh treatments of ads are more uh, driven by computer graphics uh, than, than ads were in my day. In my day, it was all about a strong idea and using graphics to emphasize it, of course, because it's a combination of words and graphics that, that make a strong point to communicate to people but now I find a lot of the, every now and then I see an ad on television uh, or a billboard that is really good and I doff my hat to it I take my baseball cap off and <laughs> doff it in that direction but so you know they're relying most uh, you know marketeers today are relying on gra computer graphics to sell the store sell the ad and whereas actually get to understand what the product is about and then you can make a relevant comment about it hopefully which is unique and special you know to that unique to that to that product but you've got to delve deep and sometimes you say to clients you're probably not going to like this but you know your company we're going to tell you the truth because your company needs a you need an overhaul or that product needs to be reformulated or you know there's a market opportunity here which you could fill so you do a job which is more it's very business oriented mm. you know that's the point so i i got into that side of it i still did 
my writing side of it. Uh, but that's how I got into it. And then I started, I had a few accounts like Roundtree's and Shell Oil um, at the agency I was at at that time. And I thought, I'm making an awful lot of money for the company. Um, and I thought, I, I think I'll try and do it myself. And I, I had, by that time, uh, uh, associates that I'd, you know, friends I'd worked with in, in, age, in the three agencies I'd worked in. Uh, and I, I put it to a few of them, only three or four, you know, would you like to join me? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a go at, at, running, at, at launching my own ad agency. And uh, they all said no, so I turned to my reserve team. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Uh, you know, um, you've always got to have a good reserve team, or you've got, uh, you've got to have a good squad, right? I knew there was going to be a few football. Yeah, we'll come into that in a minute. Um, well, they but, just found out they were in the reserves. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, later. yeah. No, you don't have reserves now. You have a squad, and I had a squad. But I, I had a few people that I, I relied, I trusted, mm-hmm. to be. I knew they were good and uh, that what they did. And I think that's one of the lessons I, I learned early on, which is in my business, which is, to, is surround yourself with good people. You can't do it on your own. Hundred percent. You know, and but and really put them to the test. I mean, you do not want sycophants telling you what they think you want to hear. You want people who challenge you and who add bring something to the to the to the game. You know, you don't want people who are just yes men or yes women. Um, I had a lot of women working in, in my company. Uh, in my ad agency because, you know, no disrespects to 23-year-old male graduates, but they are nowhere near as mature in worldly things as a 23-year-old female graduate who's got all that experience of being a woman, uh, inherent experience. Not that she's lived it necessarily, but, you know, women are so much more intelligent than men in terms of worldly things they've I'm had to we're be not live <laughs> going off no no but you know so we used to get in my agency we used to get about 60 applications from graduates every every week every week so the first ones that went in the waste bin were dear sir or madam mm-hmm. you know they couldn't even bother to find out the name of the person they should be writing to but Ultimately, it came down to uh, graduates, like uh, some of them were from Oxbridge, others weren't. But graduates, uh, you know, at the end when I I stood down from my agency because my first wife was ill. I love that your phone's ringing. It is, it is. Sorry, my phone is ringing. Um, (laughs) So shall we stop? Mate, we're all good, we're all good. This is all part of it. Yeah. Lucky I've got a good idea. <laughs> so, um, sorry, where was I? I was uh, telling you so about... You've you got, you, you've got, you've got your, you get your, your applications in, and you'll go through all of them. Talk yeah, to us about it. but the point was that, you know, women who are... We have a lot of psychology graduates uh, in advertising because they understand the way people think and behave. And, you know, and that's part of the under, uh, researching the market, 
you know, to find out more about it. Um, and women were just better at, at the overall job than men. Um, I mean, so we had about 60, over 60% of our staff were women in the London office where, where I started the company later. We grew, uh, you know, around the world, but it, you, initially you it was in like London. That, that handful of people that you picked initially, like you said, like to like global, like four thousand staff or something. Well, yeah, but that was over a period of 20. obviously over a period of uh, twenty years. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but the key thing is to, uh, you know, if I look, if I was looking for uh, people who write wrote in to our company. Mm. It was something I was looking for a personality as well as a you know academic achievements. It were, they weren't all just young graduates or anything. They were they weren't all young people. I mean, one of the best people I ever hired was a thirty-one-year-old railway porter from Hull who worked at Hull Station. Right, he turned out to be a really brilliant writer. And he wrote, he sent this letter in to, to me. He got my name right as the chairman of this ad agency called Holmes Knight Ritchie. Uh, and he sent this letter in and he sh- sent some examples of his writing. And I thought it was brilliant. So I said, can you get a free ride down on one of your trains? Come down to London and, and I'll, well, I'll, I'll have a chat with you to see, you know, whether, you, whether I can find a, a spot for you in in the company and I did and that guy recently retired from an agency an ad agency in Chicago where he's been um, creative director for the last 15 years Amazing. yeah he right retired you know but uh, he was 31 when I took him on near the end of of my time mm. in my agency because that's still such a like now even and you'll know this is all even recruitment and people in that area that how many things you look on a CV now and how many employers you talk to that actually it's down to people buying from people right yeah. you're, it's great to have a uh, you know I'm not saying anything bad about education it's good to get qualifications etc but even you, you go back to them days as well you're still looking at people and buying it based on their personality and them as a person well, and the effort they put in yeah. Like the guy put the well, I, you yeah. know, for me, it, it's all about determination, mm. enthusiasm for the job, mm. you know, for what you're doing. If you, if you have that, um, then you're halfway there. You've got to be talented in, at the level we were operating at. You had to be good. But if you also had a will to win, I mean, I brought all that stuff into football. I was going to say, there's a direct link. Yeah, there, I mean, it was it was um, clear to me that, uh, A, you know, you have goalkeepers and you have centre-forwards and in an ad agency. You know, you have writers, you have visualisers, you have researchers, you have psychologists, you have production people, all different aspects of producing a, an ad campaign, which is the same as producing a newspaper or whatever, you know, so all those skills come into it. But the, you know, the essence of people who were determined, you know, who had an enthusiasm, I love that. Mm -hmm. They really committed themselves. I mean, 
advertising is not a nine to five job. You know, you don't pack up at five. If you do, there's something wrong with you in a sense because you should be enjoying your job so much that you've got more work to do. I mean, I'm not exploiting staff in that way, but, you know, people used to enjoy coming to work in my ad agency. And I one of the, the finest, uh, if you like, achievements that I felt when I took over at the Albion was this, there was this despair in the club when I took it over uh, amongst the staff, the, the few staff that had... Uh, uh, stayed on despite Bellotti and Archer. Uh, but there was a despair in their voice. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they had no nothing to drive them on. And uh, I remember Derek uh, um, Allen, you know, our yep. uh, club secretary, company secretary, uh, club secretary, um, who knew everything about the football regulations, uh, saying to me, he, he was a... He, Derek had a reputation of being uh, very knowledgeable, but also gruff. You know, he was uh, he got on with things. But I remember coming to him about three years after he came back to the club. I brought him back. He said, I really enjoy coming to work now, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> it was like a revelation to him. And I, I said, well, Derek, that's, that's great. I'm really pleased that you're now enjoying it. Because I'll tell you a story, again, which um, goes back to Derek and and the Albion. Uh, Because when I was in the business of trying to get rid of uh, Archer, you know, get his sticky hands off the club, um, I went through a period of weeks, months, uh, where he would agree something. I never had any negotiations with Bellotti. You know, he was never involved in any of it because Archer obviously didn't... He he, he knew he was not very clever, <laughs> put it that way. So it was all with between me and Archer. and But every now and then there was a meeting that was arranged so that we could go through, you know, do the due, due diligence on the club's books, OK? So um, one there was this meeting arranged where... Um, Lottie and Derek Allen, because he was, you know, he had a lot of influence or a lot of uh, asp- uh, relevance into the financial side of the of the club. Derek, he had a lot of papers and so on involved in. So they, Derek and Bellotti came to my house in Hove one morning uh, during this whole due diligence period, right, and. Um, so they came, knocked on the door, and I was in the house on my own. And I said, would you like... So I ushered them into the lounge, uh, which had a, a long chaise lounge in the lounge where they could sit down. So I ushered them to sit there. And I said, you know, that they got... I went to the kitchen to make coffee. So when I came back into the lounge with my tray of coffee, there was... Um, Bellotti, Archer wasn't in the meeting. Bellotti was sitting, you know, at the end of one end of this chaise lounge, which held about eight people could sit on this, right? And there was Bellotti sitting there with a grim-looking face, you know, miserable-looking so-and-so, uh, and obviously not look, looking forward to this meeting he was going to have with me. He was going to be he was going to be as difficult as possible 
because that's what his boss told him to be. Um, and meanwhile, I'm looking where D- Derek Allen is at the other end of the chaise lounge, and you know the 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 curvature on the arms of a chaise lounge it goes out outwards. The yeah, arm yeah. arm of the of the chaise lounge. Derek was bent over this chaise lounge away from up Bellotti. Why? As far away from Bellotti as he could get, and he was because he. he he obviously hated Bellotti, and it was brilliant. <laughs> Can you? Um... There was Derek leaning over the chaise lounge like that, and there was about eight people, eight spaces between them. So I always loved Derek for that. It was like he, a little while after that, Derek resigned from the club, and I said to him, uh, "If and when I do win this battle, which I will do, I'm certain of that. You're coming back." Because he was a teacher originally, and he went back to teaching for a while. But immediately I got, mm. you know, I did eventually get rid of Arch, well, not get rid of, but take control. Then I got Derek back, and uh, as I said, the outcome of that was him enjoying working again. Okay, I'm just going to say something about one of our sponsors, River Vowel. The world of cars, vans and minibuses is often a pain point for many of us. The hassle of finding the right vehicle, let alone looking after it, are all more things to add to our lists as busy people. Rivervale's mission is to make motoring manageable, and that's why they provide leasing, purchasing, servicing and vehicle management. So whether you have one family car or a fleet of vans for your business, Rivervale are your trusted vehicle supplier. Visit www.rivervale.com .co.uk. Okay, let's jump back to the podcast. I enjoyed that story. Can you, for those who don't know the story, just bridge the gap between your ad agency and taking over at Brighton and Hove Albion? Because that's quite a jump. Um, and was it a dream? You know, a dream. You, your dad taking you to the Goldstone when you were eight, and there you are, potential to be the chairman. No, um, I uh, there was never any dream of becoming the chairman of the Albion. Um, I used to enjoy coming back from New York overnight on a Friday. I mean, I was often in America, and uh, I would come back overnight and uh, on a, into come into Heathrow on the Saturday morning. Go. My house was near the Goldstone Ground, and uh, so I would, you know, get down, have a shower, and then go over to the Goldstone ground to watch the team. And often meet up with my colleague, Bob Pinnock, who worked in, he was the financial director of my agency, and and a big Albion fan, came from Brighton as I did, Brighton and Hove. And uh, in fact, we were at school together. So I'd known Bob a long time, and he was, a finan- he was a, an FCA, an accountant. And so he he later became the financial director of the club. But I would often meet up with him on the East Terrace, you know, and not, I hadn't seen him for a, a few days. I'd been in New York or L.A. And I would update him on what I'd been doing. And he'd say, well, that, that happened in the agency and so on. Because, you know, but so um, I had these, I, I never lost my connection with the Albion. It was always my escape valve if you like yeah. 
from the I, I never thought I was in a stressful job I, I loved my job you know uh, and I was on aeroplanes all the time and I was living you know I was burning the candle at both ends really um, in terms of you know I then had got into smoking uh, which I should never have done and I regret it um, but basically uh, so then the bad Dark days hit the Albion, you know, uh, the Archer and Bellotti and, and uh, Stanley was more relevant than Bellotti. Although, you know, Bellotti was the front man, but he was incompetent. He was aspiring to be inept. <laughs> he did very well. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, he, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Bellotti's uh, relatives, if because I know David Bellotti died last year or so, but he he really, you know, was a disaster as far as the Albion were concerned. And Archer thought that uh, he was the right person to, you know, be in a position of power locally because he'd been an MP in Eastbourne. But, of course, he wasn't. Uh, so he made enemies all over the place. Uh, and... Um, it got to a point where the club was being, you know, run into the ground quite... And there's a, there's a, a pun for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> being run into the ground. Yeah. Uh, the ground was... It was all about the ground, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, so he'd... You know, I, Liam Brady contacted me, uh, who'd been the manager of the club, the famous ex-Arsenal player, uh, and he'd resigned from the Albion when he saw what was going on. He felt that uh, Archer and, and uh, Bellotti were up to no good. And uh, or he, he just the way they ran the club was all wrong. You know, it was all about the asset of the Goldstone ground. That's all they were interested. Bellotti wasn't involved in that. What made you get in at that time? Well, because Liam came to me... Um, would you still had you stopped running the agency when you no. so you still no I I well what I'd, I I had I had temporarily left my agency because my first wife uh, had cancer and uh, and she fought it for two years so I was I was I was you know I wasn't working in my agency I was I was a, basically at home. I was working long distance in my agency, but not full-time in any way, shape or form. Um, he'd, uh, Liam had approached me some time before and said, you know, I've resigned because of, uh, of, of what's going on at the club, and I'm, I'm totally against it. He had a connection to me through my brother-in-law, John Keehan, who is a great football man and uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. But John knew Liam and he said, well, my brother-in-law is the person you need to speak to because he's a football man and he's also got some money, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, oh, it does help. Which, which, which clearly the club needed. And uh, so anyway, Liam approached me and at the, to the first time he approached me, I said, I'd love to... It, uh, but I can't, you know, I'm, uh, it, by the way, I said, if, if I ever did get involved in the Albion, it would have to be as chairman because that's the only thing I know, 
you know, because I was, I'd started out my own agency. Sorry, I'd, I'd worked in advertising for a while as a, a, a copywriter, and then I became chairman of my own ad, ad agency because it was only me and a dog, really, uh, when we started. So, so I and I made this joke to Liam, and he always remembered that. He said, "Well, you know, obviously you would be the chairman," uh, but I said, "I can't because I'm too I'm." looking after my wife I can't really spend that time and and uh, and then Ray Bloom got involved as well trying to persuade me and they even said that they'd have meetings uh, board meetings in London to help me because my office was in London um, but I, I had to decline at that time and what year it, was this that was in 1996 right so, no, sorry, it was 1995. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, come April 96, sadly, my dear wife Margie had died in October, the previous October. And um, Liam approached me again and said, it's now or never. Basically. It was just before the York game, the famous game, mm. where the... The Sunday press had a field day saying these Brighton hooligans, you know, had invaded the pitch and stopped the game. The game had to be abandoned. But, of course, the hooligans, they weren't hooligans. They were fans completely exasperated by the inability of the Football League and the FA Mm -hmm. to sort Archer out. And uh, it was only, you know, ultimately the very good... Uh, help that I got, the club got from David Davis, who was then the communications director of the FA, who took an interest and saw what was going on at Brighton and said to his boss, Graham Kelly, who wasn't in the slightest bit interested, Graham Kelly was the chief executive of the FA, what is going on at Brighton is, you know, could be happening at lots of other clubs. David had the vision to see that and he worked with me and we came up with the idea of of mediation in this battle to get rid of Archer Uh, and the FA paid for it David made sure the FA paid for it but it was I I couldn't stand by and, and see my club being destroyed by this guy who had no genuine interest in the club at all he he had no you know he never went to games uh, he put this you know this puppet uh, who was a pretty thick puppet you know in pl- in his place and uh, and they they op- they stumbled through and he was only interested in selling the ground and making a huge profit on the ground that's all that archer was interested in and i was determined to make sure that he couldn't profit in that way and that he wouldn't destroy our football club in the process which is what he would have done without any doubt you know uh, because he wasn't he couldn't care less about the club the story of that we could talk about for hours couldn't we because it's an incredible story what's your proudest moment of that part of your journey was that the most the proudest moment yeah I think the proudest moment was when I got um (laughs) <laughs> I got, uh, I gave Archer and Bellotti 
I gave Archer a check for 56 quid and I gave Bellotti, sorry, not Bellotti, Stanley, uh, Greg Stanley, a check for 44 quid because they controlled the club by that 56% and 44% in a £100 company that they'd set up which controlled Brighton and Hove Albion, right? So I delighted in giving them these checks, writing check, pay Greg Stanley £44, pay Bill Archer £56, because it was waving goodbye to them in the sense that I bought them out. Guess what? Greg Stanley cashed the check, (laughs) which was a ridiculous thing to do. At least Archer never cashed the check because he knew that it would be a huge embarrassment to him if he did that. (laughs) But it was a symbolic uh, point where I still had to put up with him because he, he had a minority interest still in the club, but I made sure that at the right time, I, about two years later, I got rid of him completely, but made sure that the money he got at that time was never more than they'd originally put in. Because during the during the period that they were in charge, that Archer and, and uh, Belot, well, Archer and um, Greg Stanley were in charge, they brought in this this scheme whereby the the money that Stanley put into the club, there was no money from Archer. It was all loans, and it was all subject to interest. So he'd originally put in £800,000. By the time I got involved to try and get rid of them, um, it had gone up to £1.4 million in interest. So I swore to myself that they they were never going to get £1.4 million. They would only ever get, at the most, less than what they put in in the first place, right? So, um, and that is, I, I pledge to myself and the, and the and the new board yep. that that's what would happen. And and we did. I managed to. Well, I did achieve that at the right time. You mentioned Liam Brady. I've got a quote here. He said, and he was obviously being part facetious, but a hundred percent true because he said probably. He's probably had the club at the worst possible time and done the best possible job anyone could have had. You categorically had it at the worst time. To keep the club alive in the circumstances is remarkable, um, which he, he told you and he's told many people many times ever since. That it's the most remarkable thing that he's ever seen, what you did with Brighton and Hove Albion. Liam said that. Liam said I've that. I've never heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Well, Liam is a, is a good guy. You know, he... The irony of it was that he was the one who got me involved. You know, I mean, I was already involved as a fan, obviously, but I never expected to become the chairman of the club. Um, And the irony of that, so Liam persuaded me eventually to get involved. And it was, I mean, I got on really well with Liam. Uh, You know, he liked the fact that I was a football man. I did know what I was talking about because he Liam's not the type to suffer fools gladly. He's a very uh, bright guy, Liam. And, uh, I mean, one of the things the Italians loved him, about him when he went to play for Juve was, was that he learnt the language. And none of the other English players who went to Italy learnt the language. But L- Liam and his wife, Sarah, and his two kids, they all learnt the language. And the Italians loved that. You know, I remember going with Liam with... Uh, 
Bettiger, Ramon Betty, I, I think his name, who who uh, Liam uh, roomed with when they he played for Juventus as well, and he was the Italian centre half. And Bettiger, um, he we we used to, they used to come and watch Arsenal play when you know in the midweek. Bettiger was there, and and he was he spoke reasonable English. And I don't speak very good Italian, but man, we managed to have this uh, brilliant dinner one evening after an Arsenal midweek uh, European game. And Roberto, Roberto Bettiger said to me, he said, we love Liam in Italy because he learned our language. You know, and, and you could see the affection that they had for him. Well, he wasn't a bad player either. Well, because, but here's a lovely, here's, here's an exclusive story for you. Right, Liam told me, I hope he doesn't mind, he may even have this in his book, but he said to me, uh, he'd been there two years, and Agnelli, who was the owner of Juventus and Fiat, you know, which is a Fiat company, yeah. um, called him in at the end of the season, and he said, um, Liam, uh, have you, you've enjoyed yourself here. Yes, Mr. Chairman, or Mr. El Presidente. Um, he said... Um, You'll like it even more in Genoa. So Leon goes, pardon, <laughs> you know. Basically, he said, he said that we're we're going to sell you to Sampdoria, which is another top team in league in Syria. Ah, and he said, so Liam said, I don't want to go. I'm happy. We we've, you know, we the children are settled in school. Uh, and we we love the language, you know. We've learned that it was, it, Liam was like he said, "I've got you twice as much money, a huge salary increase." He said, "Because I've got to let you go, Liam, because I'm bringing in another player in your position." So Liam, go, who, as you said, Liam is a brilliant, was a mm. wonderful player. And it, he said, well, "Who are you bringing in, Mr. Chairman?" And he said, "I'm bringing in this Frenchman called Michel Platini." <laughs> you know, average, average. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope Liam doesn't mind me saying that story. And it could well be in his book, but it's it, it, these stories. You can. It was like the guy had arranged everything. He said, "We've got you a lovely house in in north of Genoa," or you know, and it was amazing. Well, I'm keen. I think Liam coming to you and approaching you about getting in, into the club. A couple of things I just want to take out listening to what you've said over the period is going from being obviously a very successful businessman, taking, you, you sort of alluded to it a little bit about culture, and then how do you take what you learned from business into running a football club, being a chairman of a football club at that time in such a, mm. as you just alluded to there, a d dire situation? Going in with the not as you mentioned, no ambitions and dreams to become a chairman of a football club. But all of a sudden, there, there's this situation presented with you in front of you, and you've gone. I want to take that. Well, on. someone had to do it, uh, Sam. Uh, you know, someone had to do it, and uh, Liam was right. In uh, I mean, my my dear brother-in-law John Keehan sort of sold me to Liam <laughs> and he said you'll get on with him and you know anyway so I couldn't stand by and let my my club you know my team that I'd supported since I was eight years of age get destroyed by this in 
you know, this nasty bit of work, northern businessman who had no affection or links with Brighton or the area whatsoever. And so, uh, and of course, there were a lot of other people in the town and the area who thought the same way as I did. So when I eventually, when I was still fighting to get rid of Archer, I held various meetings with the fans in Hovetown Hall, places like that. Um, the uh, What's the name of the club on the seafront in Brighton? Oh, there's loads. <clears throat> You did? Concord. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember David Davis came. I asked him to come there, come to a meeting in Brighton. And he said, they tell me, he said, they tell me limb from limb, your fans, because they, they hate the FA because of their, you know, the fact that we've done nothing. And I said, they won't. They'll leave it to me, David. If I've invited you, they'll, they'll let you go. <laughs> and... Sure enough, you know, he came down and, and was honest with the fans. Uh, but I had these various meetings with the, you know, with the fans, telling them what I was doing, what I was trying to do, and so on and so on. And uh, so we had a great relationship from the beginning, really. They could see, the fans could see that I was an, a genuine Albion fan. Yeah. And, of course, taking it on to today... The club is unique in the sense that it's had two chairmen, myself and obviously Tony, who are genuine Albion fans. And in that time, we've taken the club from nowhere to in this wonderful position we're in now. And we're all enjoying it hugely, including me. Absolutely. Absolutely, including me. Because, (laughs) you know, my dad would be pleased with what I was going I've to ask done. you that. Hmm? It'd be incredibly proud. Yeah, uh, and my family are, they, you know, we. it's lovely to have people coming up to you in the street and now, you know, and particularly now, I guess, with families, with young kids and people, the father or the mum saying, this is the chap that saved the club, yeah. you know, and now with Mr. Bloom, they've they've made it into what it is now. And so you get young, you know, young people wanting to shake you by the hand. It's lovely. And, uh, you know, so it's it's a brilliant situation that the club has. And long may it continue. Mm? We talk about stories. It's a fairy tale story. Like you go in where you are at 1997, where he's on his his deathbed. And then we're talking now, playing in Europe. This is Geo. Geo runs a scarf company. Geo doesn't see the need for telecoms. Everybody uses mobiles now. But can a mobile really be a business phone? Geo is having coffee with a client, Gabby. Well, actually, Geo prefers acacia leaf tea. But what happens when someone calls? It could be a big new deal. Surely it would be rude to take the call? But many people hate leaving messages. They may just call a competitor instead. What can Geo do? The answer is simple. Turn the mobile into a business phone. With the GoGiraffe app, Geo can quickly transfer the call. Or, before the meeting, Geo can simply use the app to divert calls. No more missed calls, lost deals or unhappy customers. Turn your mobile into a business phone today. GoGiraffe. From what you've said, to link it back to the question you asked, the transition from company founder 
chairman to chairman of a football club came naturally to you. You were already talking about teams, squads, surrounding yourself with good people, playing in the right positions. Yeah. It, I, I'm guessing, I'm putting words in your mouth, but tell me if I'm wrong. It, it's almost like it was logical to do things the way you did them. Yeah, it was, Gary. It's a very good point because I saw, you know, in an ad agency, you've got these pieces of a jigsaw that all fit together, you know, mm. or put it in another way. It's, uh, like, um, it's like a patchwork quilt, which is made up of all different materials. Put it together and it works as a quilt, right? In other words, the sum of the individual parts is greater than the individual parts, right? Yep. And so you have a team of people. You have a team a goalkeeper, centre forward, you know. I mean, they all f must fit into it. And then you have the backup team that supports that structure. And it's logical to me because I'd built a business. I'd, I'd, it, so it was. It was very logical to me. I just knew when, when I looked at the situation the club was in, it was, it, was, it was physically in a terrible material position financially. But it was in a... Um, you know, emotionally and morally, it was in a terrible position as well because mm. it had been allowed to uh, degenerate to the point where there was no motivation. Uh, there was no, there was no people hated working for the club. The players, I mean, it, one of the things I remember picking up very quickly when I t took over was that when I, we were playing an away game. Um, the coach would leave Brighton with about two players on it and it would go via Winchester and Southampton or wherever to pick up our home players. You know, players... and Because they all lived away from Brighton. There was no, you know, there was no um, coordination of the club in the sense that that should never have been allowed to happen. You know, it was ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> and I, I tell you, uh, so the, 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 there's a very good goalkeeper we had, right? Who's uh, that? At the time when I took over. Perry Digweed. No, no, no not that, Perry. Who um, was after that? Oh, gosh, I'm forgetting his name, but I shouldn't. He came from Cambridge, right? I know who it is. He name. was a, a good-looking young guy, yeah. and he was our goalkeeper, right? And he, he, so when I'm going through the um, uh, players' contracts and so on, I see that this guy um, got a travelling allowance because he lived in Cambridge. He'll know what I'm, t he'll know I'm talking about him, but I'm not going to mention his name, right? So, and he'll, if he ever gets to hear this, he'll chuckle, and I'm saying it in the spirit of, uh, of laughter, is, is that, um, so he'd been, I'd been in charge for about a few months and he was negotiating a new contract, right? We were offering him another contract. So <laughs> I'd made it clear that I wanted people to live nearer to Brighton, right? So he comes in with this, this new application, which the address was still Cambridge, right? <laughs> so I said to him, Derek was the you know liaising on it. Derek uh, Allen was you know, and he he said, "Well, I'm moving to South Cambridge, 
Mr. <laughs> Chairman. <laughs> it's nearer to Brighton. And he thought he could get away with it. Well, of course, that was the, it, it was such a loosely run organisation. I mean, it, we were paying a lot of travelling. Sorry, you moved to Brighton. You play for Brighton. You don't yeah. play for Cambridge. Yeah. You know, and it was stuff like that that you saw as being inefficient but also a loose attitude that had allowed that to happen, you know. And and uh, throughout the club, there was this there was this uh, ineptitude uh, and laissez-faire sort of attitude that said, "Well, who cares?" Yeah. You know. Well, well talk, talk to us then. Look, uh, we've just alluded to all the amazing thing that has happened. What's the what's the highest point and then and the lowest of running the club? Highest, let's go with that first. Like that walking out on the day of the, at the Amex that first time. Well, on. yes, because the whole battle was about getting the stadium. I knew that I was absolutely certain in my mind that we would get to the Premier League if we got the stadium. You know, it was in if the stadium came first. If we got the stadium, the right size stadium, uh, we would get to the Premier League. We would get back to the top level. We had been briefly at the top level, as Gary knows. Uh, and uh, But this was different. You know, I had to get a stadium that did justice to the city. Uh, whoever heard of a city? A t- one of the first cities of the 21st century, you know, elected by or selected by Her Majesty uh, to not have a state-of-the-art stadium. Mm. And it was the whole strategy was about getting the stadium. Uh, and I knew that when, when we got the stadium, we would, we'd already, I already got the team up to the championship uh, playing at Withdean, where we, our average receipt gate, our average revenue, give you an idea, uh, uh, Withdean was one-sixth of the average revenue of a, every other club when we were in the championship, one-sixth, 16%. Um, because all those overhead costs of, uh, you know, keeping people, uh, all the uh, transport uh, costs that we subsidised, free travel for everyone who came in from various parts, you know, by train, bus, it was all park and ride, all of that, and stewarding uh, around the area of Withdean that had to be paid for by the club. And it was, uh, so we lost over 50% of our gate receipts. And the gate receipts were pretty puny anyway, because our crowd, we could only hold, the most we ever held at Withdean was 8,800 against Man City one of the greatest, probably the greatest result we ever got at, at Withdean was beating them in the, in the whatever milk cup it was called at that time. <laughs> um, it wasn't the Carabao Cup, but it was, uh, we beat, we beat um, you know, uh, Man City. And, uh, and they had, they were beginning to get their star players. And in fact, Rubinho, uh, I had a club, cartoonist right it did this vision a visual of, of the the bike there was this bike shed 
you know, and there was me standing there in Rubinho and he he got his boots under his arm. You know, it was a cartoon. And and I'm saying to him, the dress route, dressing rooms are behind the shed over there. <laughs> <laughs> and that just about summed up with me. And they it? were. Hmm? They were. They were at the back of the ground. Yeah, exactly. And there was another wonderful... St- it was, that was Rubinho uh, cried off for that game. But the, the one that was... Um, he no, he actually had stayed in Brazil at that time, so he never came to that. He wasn't, he, though he was on the bed that he'd signed for them. He wasn't actually started playing, but the one who was playing, and this is in the league. Uh, do you remember Ravanelli, yeah. who played for Middlesbrough and Derby? Well, so we played. We were playing Derby right um, on a Saturday and uh, at the Withdean. And so they t- they turned up at, at the Whitney at about midday, um, you know, from the hotel they'd stayed in in Brighton. And uh, so they're working out. And um, Ravenelli says to the one of the physios, um, when do we go to the stadium? <laughs> right. He's, he's working out down the side of the, when do we go to the stadium? <laughs> so the coach says to him, this is the stadium. <laughs> so, guess what? Ravinelli all of a sudden pulled a hamstring and never played. He, he cried off from playing in that game. It was beneath him to wow. play in that game. And so they, I mean. Cold Tuesday night at a whiff day in Connecticut, could he? Yeah, yeah. When you think of Ravinelli, what was he missing? He missed. The chance of playing at the world famous with Dean. Oh, that's right. The with Dean, as Mickey Adams used to call it. Well, we all called it the with Dean in the end, but Mickey was the one who called it the with Dean rather than with Dean. I, I'm sitting here listening to that, knowing that through the the battle to secure, well, you're two games away from relegation from the Football League, right? Then the whole Bellotti Archer thing. Then taking it over, then having no money, then Gillingham, then the Withdean, then these players coming in and out. You know, there's heroes that have been born out of this, isn't there? In Brighton players and managers. Yeah. You must have eight million trillion stories that I could listen to all day, yeah, every 100%. day. It's almost like I, I hope somebody grabs hold of this when they hear it and go, My word, there's so much more that we need to hear from Dick. But we just won't have time to do it today. No, there's no, still no. there's a few things we need to cover. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 but that's yeah, absolute absolutely. gold. But we didn't get the low. Do you want to talk about a low point? It doesn't have to be your lowest point because that may be personal. But yeah, but the, the lowest point uh, is easy. It comes to mind very easily. Actually, it was it was in the second year that I'd taken over. We were still at Gillingham. Uh, it was. It, we were playing away at Walsall in a in a League Cup game away early in the season it was early in that second season that uh, that I I um, I went there I was on my own I was the only director who was there we lost the game 5-0 and it was pouring with rain and it was the awful realisation that I had that I was going to have to change Steve Grip. I didn't want to, but I felt that it was necessary in order to pick the team up by its bootstraps because it was... Steve did a brilliant job, but I, 
it needed to be refreshed in a way. He was, he, 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 it wasn't his fault, but he was part of the previous regime. And he, he did a great job. But I think the fans, you know, saved us as well because they rallied round the club at the time, you know, when things looked really bleak. Yeah. Steve did a brilliant job. Uh, but I felt during that, the, into the next season, that uh, we were so low. Uh, we was, you know, we were playing at Gillingham, which was not a great place to play. Um, and you know, when we used to arrive there, it says "Welcome to Gillingham," and I used to think, "Yeah, you are welcome to Gillingham." <laughs> <laughs> but that's unfair on Paul Scully, who uh, I think because Paul. Scott, I love people with a sense of humour and I always got on in the end well with him and uh, also Simon Jordan sorry to say that everyone but you know Simon and I used to share uh, experiences on a Saturday morning at Malaga airport when I used to you know I, I lived in Spain there for a while and I was coming back to, and he, I was saying to, they were in the Premier League by then and I would say where, where are you? Where are you off to today, Simon? And he would say, "I'm going to Liverpool. We're 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 at Goodison Park today. Mm-hmm. Where are you going, Dick?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to Newcastle, but we're actually playing at Carlisle." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so those were the and we, you know, all of that. Uh, I suffered. Well, I suffered. I enjoyed it. I can only say that I enjoyed all of that because it was... Was there a, ever, just to interject, was there ever a point, all them challenges you just highlighted there, was there ever a point where you just went, ever thought to yourself, I don't know if I can do this anymore? No, not really. I mean, there were times at the during the battle for the stadium where there were so many obstacles uh, put in our way and uh, Martin... Perry, my right-hand man, you know, he and I tackled all of it. And uh, sometimes he, I'd, I'd see him, you know, with his head down and like thinking, how the hell are we going to get through that? And but Martin was great, you know. We he had the experience of knowing about stadium, you know, building, and that's why I brought him in. And uh, he did a great job in. Between us, we were a, a very good team, Martin and I, in terms of persuading the fans that that we've got control of this. We are handling this in a very good way, but it would we couldn't have got where we did without the fans supporting us. So when the Falmer for All, I mean tonight, I'm going to a dinner, a Falmer for All dinner, right. of the group who helped me and Martin get the stadium. Uh, and those fans all played an incredible part in... Because I said to Martin, we should form this group, but you and I should not be running it. We will be part of the team. And so Paul Samra became the chairman of that, and people like Liz Costa, John Bain, and so on, Bill Swallow, all those people... Uh, so many of them, uh, Ed Basford, who sadly died, Roy, Roy um, who died, um, Sarah Watts, who died, Roy Tudor, died. So many of them have died. Uh, Paul Welch, another one who died. All of those people, we, the club owes a great debt to. 
absolutely. Because they, the, we were a real team of people, uh, and we sat in on these meetings. I mean, we led it in a sense. We guided it rather than led it. But the input of people like Paul Samra, John Bain, and so on, the people I've mentioned, and others was incalculable how much the you know the effort that went in i mean every football club has this resource of fans who are very intelligent and resourceful if you put them into a, a team and make them work together that's the key thing is to use the resource and not have it flying off in all directions you've got to bring it together as a, as a as team. Part of that's credit to you, I guess, back to the, again, back to the business leadership, taking that into that and, and creating that environment for those yeah. people to flourish. So you create a community of people to buy into you as a leader, which you had to get that buy-in first, right? Yes, and they, and they weren't, and I used to say in my ad agency, you know, it doesn't matter where good ideas come from the most junior person can come up with a good idea as long as we come up with good ideas. Yeah. So I, I was always encouraging people to think outside the box in terms of don't think that's the only way to approach it. I mean, I'm talking more in the advertising sense, but it was the same spirit of that farmer for all team where you know, the approach to it was we're not going to be beaten on this on this enterprise. We're going to win this despite everything that was thrown against us and because good was on our side. How could anybody possibly stop a small football club having a stadium? <laughs> the answer is I knew we needed a big stadium <laughs> because we deserved it. We had the potential to be a big club. And now we're fulfilling that and hopefully we'll continue to fulfill it. But it needed the stadium. That was the key yeah. to it. And the potential of Brighton and Hove Albion was now able to really be fulfilled. Well, look at it now. <clears throat> I was very lucky to be invited by, I think it was, it was Steve who invited me. I did some volunteering for Albion in the community many years ago and then was invited to be a trustee and was a trustee for eight years. We haven't even talked about Albion in the <laughs> well, community. Well, I was going to say, mm? I was going to say, like, up there in your proudest moment surely would be the creation of Albion in the community well, and it, the impact it, it's had. Yes, uh, um, I, I was just thinking on the playing side, but, you know, yes, the, the Albion in the community is one of my pre proudest, uh, I mean, it's not called Albion in the community now, uh, but that sums up exactly what it was. Yeah. Not football in the community, which is what it was when I when I first took over. Uh, I wanted it to spread far wider using the power of, of football to reach disadvantaged people in whatever way they were disadvantaged, whether they were disabled or, um, you know, uh, physically uh, affected in that way or financially uh, in in terms of their welfare generally we 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 could use the power of football you know to improve people's lives and uh and that's you know what they you most get. certainly did that hmm? you most certainly did that you won a an award or two along the well, way we i think we won four <laughs> a, a year community <laughs> club of the year awards yeah 
I remember Martin saying to me that Dick, they all, they've said you can't win it this year because the number of, we're trying to put on this annual do at the Grosvenor House Hotel and we can't, if we keep winning it, you know, you won't get other clubs to take a table of, for 10 for a thousand quid or whatever they charge, you know. Because Undoubtedly was the go-to, it's all right, the go-to uh, charity in football by a million, million miles. Um, nobody could get near it. They, they, they raised the bar so that nobody, uh, well, everybody wanted to be helping in the community as it was then. Yeah. I, I, I remember first coming to Brighton. That was how I engaged with the club. I heard you talk about, you, you stood up and talked and talk about it. Um, and I remember engaging with the club based on Albion and the community. Yeah. I got my business involved in the football club yeah. based on Albion and the community because yeah. it was, it was well, an there incredible, was so many, incredible um, initiative and charity. The power of uh, of sport. I mean, that's how I I got the American Express deal. It wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't to do with the fact we were uh, at that time when I did the deal. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it was we were a third level team. We were in League One, so I certainly wasn't trying to sell them the idea of putting your sh- name on our shirt because I knew they'd throw me out. What, for putting Brighton and Hove jobs on it? No, oh, you got the uh, Wasn't reward. that part of your negotiations? <laughs> yeah, I said, it, unless you... <laughs> unless you, I, Actually, Gary, I did say, unless you, unless you give me the naming rights of the stadium for 10 years, I'm going to put Brighton and Hove jobs... <laughs> You know, on the shirt for ten well, years, you're and in the end, in the end, we only gave it to you for two years, or one year, well. two years. Well, but anyway, you know, but yeah. But the point is, it was all about community and the power of community uh, to, uh, sorry, the power of football to help a community, and the power of sport to help a community. But but the cl- the club itself, like when you, you take it hold of it. And- Building on that community, as we just mentioned to, with the people you said in that Falmer Forum that, that, that built in that. I mean, did, is there still that sense of community within the club and helping us still to get to where we are today? Well, yes. I mean, the the fans are very important to every club. Uh, most of the clubs understand that now, uh, but they didn't used to, including the Albion. The Albion will patronise the fans. As long as people turned up on a Saturday afternoon at three o'clock, I mean, I'm going back to when I started. Um, you know, there was no services for the for the uh, fans or anything. I mean, I always remember in one of those the first public inquiry we had for for um, for the stadium, Falmer. Um, the QC from Lewis thought he would get me on to... Uh, he was trying to get me to agree as to why we should never have left the Goldstone ground. And I spotted what he was up to, you know. So he said to me, Mr Knight, he said, can you, can you reminisce about the Goldstone ground? You lived through it all. It must have been a wonderful ground to play. So he was, giving, he was encouraging me to go on because he was then going to say, so why did you leave? You know, as if I had anything to do with it, right? So I said, um, I think his name was Shepherd. I said, Mr. Shepherd, I'm I'm sorry to, uh, you know, uh, contradict you, but 
the Goldstone Ground was, you know, the, 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 let me put it this way, the food in the kiosk on, in the Goldstone Ground was put in there at the beginning of the season in, in August and some of the sausage rolls that were on the east, ty- uh, east side um, kiosk was still there at the end of that season. They they were they were molding in there. You know, the facilities of the ground were awful. There was no facilities whatsoever. We all turned up on a Saturday afternoon, cheered the team on. So no, we were. You know, I wasn't involved in that. But if I had, I would have. Um, I would have we would have moved from the Goldston ground to a more suitable ground in a seamless move at the end of a season. So there was no way that we should have stayed at the Goldston ground. You know, I disabused this guy and he said to me afterwards, he said, he said, you saw where I was coming from. (laughs) You know, and he turned out that this guy actually was a football fan. He was a, a fan of Newport County so I really got my own back when I told him that um, I remember seeing your team get thrashed 9-1 when I was a kid, referring back <laughs> yeah, to that yeah, game. Yeah. And he said, oh, God, no. He said, 9-1. We lost 9-1. I said, yeah, and you deserved it. <laughs> Great stuff. Mate, we're sort of coming towards the end yeah. now. Um, I don't know if you've got anything to add, but before our, our, obviously I generally look at trying to round up with people how we define success that's my how we define success so you we've talked about and we've only had a a snapshot we're gonna have to get you back on for part two i think dick but just a a look at your amazing business career right to start with what an incredible journey that was and you know the success that you had with that to then go on and take the football club from where it was to where it is and all the amazing achievements you've had along your life where you've been where you are where you're going tell tell me how how do you define success Uh, I think uh, determination you know you you set your goal and uh, you've got to achieve it uh, and you will achieve it through through determination and enthusiasm if you don't have that, you haven't got anything to carry you through to success. You know, you if you've got the the willpower to uh, to the will to succeed is very strong. You know, and I came as I say, I come from my my dad was in the war. He was damaged mentally by the war, by what he did. Uh, and I and I we were a very ordinary family, uh, and I always had this. Uh, I was blessed, you know, with quite a, a bright brain, and I was determined to not be put in a position uh, that my dad was, which was before the war. He was a he worked for a very well known company. He was the regional manager, and he was like twenty five or something. And he went into the RF, and uh, and then he survived it, and he came out, and he was a hero. Uh, but he went back, and he never got higher in the same company. 
And I thought that was outrageous that he wasn't promoted or anything because he was damaged by the war. Uh, and I thought, well, that's just not fair. And, uh, you know, uh, my mum was a really bright lady and, and she lived in a generation where women weren't given the opportunity. And so many of them were so intelligent and bright as I've said before, for the reasons I've mentioned earlier. But the fact is, I was determined to not fall into that, into that pit, you know, of, not, of life not being fair to you. So I was determined to succeed. So I had this determination, you know, and uh, that's a strong, uh, uh, it's a strong force to help you. You've got to have you've got to have other qualities as well, clearly. Um, but I think that's and I I'll come back to you know just finishing on an Albion story if you like. I remember one year when uh, I think it was two thousand and three or something. Uh, we had a fantastically youth team. You know we we got to the sixth round or the semi. I think it was the sixth round of the FA Youth Cup, and we played away at Newcastle. Right, and at St James's Park, and uh, we this game we drew nil nil, and we lost it on penalties, having having been three one up in the penalty shootout. We managed to lose it because their goalkeeper was the man of the match. Anyway, after the game, um, Peter Beardsley came up to me, who was the coach of Newcastle. And he said, can I go into, you know, your, uh, can I go and say how well I thought your lads did? Can I go and talk to them? And I said, As, yes. He said, but you better, I said, I better come with you in case you want to tap up any of our players. <laughs> and he, he said, no, I wouldn't do that, Mr. Chairman. Anyway, so, um, so what happened at the end of, so we got knocked out on penalties and Newcastle, went to the final of that of that cup I don't think they won it I think they lost to Man City but anyway so we get to the end of, we're almost at the end of the season it's the time to decide on whether we're keeping these guys we're giving them playing contracts you know pro contracts for their next stage of their career they'd all come up through the ranks and they so we have this meeting at the in the so-called boardroom in Queen's Road right and it was it was Martin Hinchwood, me, sorry, it was Martin Hinchwood, uh, Mark McGee, and me, and I think Dean Wilkins was there as well. And we sat in the boardroom, and the players came in, and they were, you know, told what what was going to happen. Yeah. And uh, so we eventually gave uh, one of the last people was Dean Cox who was uh, waiting outside, as they all were. You know, we gave them coffee and all that. Um, he came in, and he obviously, because some of them had not been given contracts, but several of them had. A lot of them had. Mm. Unique for that year. Yeah. And uh, so Dean didn't know the way, which way it was going. Uh, anyway, we, we decided to give him a year's contract. We said, we're giving you a year's contract. Well, at this point, Dean who was by no means the most talented player of the group that we gave contracts to, 
got up and you know, you know, he's not a big guy. Yeah. He came. He ran round the table <laughs> and he hugged me. He hugged. Uh, he hugged um, Martin Hinchwood. He hugged Ma- um, Mark McGee, and he said, "And he hugged me." And he said, "Thank you, gentlemen." He said, "I'm going to prove you right. You've, you, I'm determined. I'm going to prove you right. You know that you've made the right decision." And of course, he went on, Dean. He did. He did prove us right because he. It was his determination that gave him a really good career yeah. in football. You know, he played many more games than a lot of <coughs> players who may have been on paper more talented than him, but he had this determination to succeed. Yeah. And he had a great career in football. So, that, to me, those sort of incidents are always uh, memorable because they prove that, you know, it's lovely when it works. Lovely when it works. So much of what you've said links back to your father's story, your mother's story. That determination, growing up in Port Slade, making something from nothing, creating opportunity on the train, working <laughs> well, hard, <that> was... <clears throat> working smart. But all of this stuff, it's in you, isn't it? And you've always wanted to do good as well. But you've got this yeah. huge passion about you that you're not going to get stopped no matter what gets in your way, are you? Norman Cook, uh, Fat Boy Slim quote here, there wouldn't be a Brighton and a Hove Albion without him. And who, would, who else would you want at that point yeah. through the journey to be at the front leading away? Thank you so much for your time today. Gary, I think thank you. Ten hours, hundred <laughs> hours of stories. I've only just started. No, no, I'm lucky. I am lucky because I've got my enthusiasm still. So if you ask me what the future holds for me, it's more enthusiasm. That's what the future holds. So who knows where we're going to go next? You know, I'm certainly looking forward to booking my hotel for Dublin <laughs> excellent will, will, will you come back next time and tell us exactly what else you've been up to and uh, okay. maybe we can uh, maybe we can delve into some more of them stories guys so, Sam Gary thank great. you for being such good genial hosts I've enjoyed it very much even if my coffee's got cold <laughs> but then it always does because I talk too much <laughs> mate listen Gary thanks for joining me mate oh, thank you Dick, honestly, it's been an absolute honour to have you on, and um, thank you. Loved every minute of it, and can't wait to share this one. So, thanks again, mate. It's been it's been gold. And as a wrap, as they say. <laughs>